0: thinking about the song that we just sang, Hosanna in the highest. You know, one of the most familiar places where the people cry at Hosanna is when Jesus is making his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And they're laying down palm branches and they're saying Hosanna. And and the the part that we're at in the scripture is, is just a week or so after that, after they're saying, praise him, Hosanna in the highest. And now he's in the upper room and he's about ready to go to the cross. So there's, there's been a lot of things that have happened in that time. And, and we're looking at John chapters 13 through 17. Some of the richest scripture in all of the Bible. We're right in the upper room with Jesus. His last moments with the disciples. Hearing his voice in the room with him. As he's pouring into his disciples for these last hours. And the disciples are troubled in spirit. They're anxious. There's a lot of things going through their minds and so my question is is why would these disciples be tempted to be troubled to be tempted to doubt to be tempted to be anxious why all the angst in these disciples so let's do a little, I'm going to do a little recap of what's happened in John chapter 13 since they've been in the upper room. We said that when they got into the upper room, they, they were having the Passover feast. The, the table in the, the room would have been set up kind of like in a U-shaped, and they would have all been leaning down on their side, kind of on their elbow and on their side, kind of tucked in to one another around the table having a meal. They were in a very intimate setting. They, it wasn't like tables and chairs like, the, like that picture shows. That's That's actually not accurate to what what it would have looked like so they're, they're all tucked in together and there's been a lot of things happen since they've been in the upper room the first thing that happened was Jesus does something very unordinary he he gets up in the middle of the meal they're having the meal and he begins to derobe himself and begins to wash his disciples feet he takes on the posture of a servant we see that in John chapter 13 and, and a servant would have done that in any other situation Jesus is the guest of honor and he's washing His disciples' feet. Soon after this, Jesus begins to tell the disciples that someone in this room is going to betray me. And we looked at the story of Judas and how Judas sold Jesus out. He wasn't really a follower of Jesus. He sold him out when the pressure came on. And the disciples were all watching this go down. And, and just last week, we, we talked briefly about Peter and what Jesus would say about Peter. Peter is, is typically the most vocal of the disciples, right? Sometimes to his demise, right? He's, he's kind of the first one to speak in the room. He's the boldest disciple. And Peter finds out as he's kind of telling Jesus that, no, no I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, you're even going to deny me three times before the sun rises in the morning. And so all of this has happened in this upper room around this table as they're celebrating the Passover feast. So their hearts are troubled. And lastly, probably and probably what's weighing on them even more than anything is Jesus has made this declaration. And what Jesus has said is that I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you. But I'm going to come back. I'm going to to leave you. And so in their mind, they're thinking about all of the things that Jesus has done to comfort them over the last two and a half or three years. Jesus, there was this one time they were on the Sea of Galilee and a squall came up. And Jesus, they wake Jesus up. And the storm doesn't wake Jesus up, but the disciples wake Jesus up. And Jesus says, be still. And the the storm quiets. There was this one time when their good friend Lazarus died and he rose him from the dead. Their hearts were troubled because Jesus was not going to be with them, but they didn't see the full picture of what that was going to mean. So this is where we pick up this morning. We're in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples, Judas is left to betray him, and here we are in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Jesus says this, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, if it were not so. What I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said this to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. you saw fit for your son Jesus to be troubled in his spirit so that we could be at peace with you forever. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to be where we're at this morning and to look to you and not ourselves to fix that. Father, help us to see your son as the only way possible to have peace with you and peace in life. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, in our midst this morning. And it's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen. The disciples are troubled and they're anxious. If all of these things happened to you in a week, wouldn't you be a little troubled as well? You put all of your eggs into the basket of following Jesus, and now he's leaving? I mean, you've burned all the bridges that you had before, all the ties that you had before to follow Jesus. And now... He's leaving. I mean, I think about the things that have troubled me just in the last week. Well, my van broke down. That's never a good day, right? When your van breaks down. I have some tricky extended family dynamics, as we all do. There's kind of like this bittersweet thing that happened a couple weeks ago. My father actually came to church for the very first time and heard me preach. He's never heard me preach before. He came preaching on the gospel of Judas, right? Right here, what a sermon for the first sermon to hear your son preach. And he was here, and so God's doing a work there, and I don't know what he's doing. And it causes me anxiousness to think about the work that my God is doing in my dad's life. I got this ridiculous tax bill from the IRS, completely unexpected this past week. A broken air conditioner, my, all of these things. My son has got this allergic reaction, we're trying to figure out what's going on. All of these things are, are tempting me to be troubled in my spirit. And you've got your own list too. And your list is probably longer than mine. I mean, it's, that's not that bad of a week, but I mean, there's some things that I could be anxious about. And these are just normal parts of our lives, aren't they? It's just normal, everyday parts of our lives. And we are tempted to bow our knee to whatever causes us to be anxious and just do enough to get it to go away. But we'll never find our relief in getting it to go away. God doesn't want us to just put on a smiley face. And to say, everything's good. I'm good to go. If there's one thing we've learned about Jesus as we've been studying his word together. God is a good father and he sent Jesus to us. And Jesus is a gentle shepherd. And he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants us to come with him where we're at. He wants us to come to him. So the question I have for us today that we've got to answer. This is the question that we have to answer this morning, and it's this. Why is it a problem for a Christian to have a troubled heart? Why is it a problem for a Christian to have a troubled heart? Out of all of the sermons that Martin Luther, the great reformer, ever heard, he said that this, this sermon that, that Jesus is preaching in John 14:1 to his disciples in the upper room is the greatest and most comforting sermon that there is in the Bible. So my prayer for you today is that you would see it that way, that you'd be honest about where you're at, and we'd look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith this morning, to make us new, to make us whole. So why is this problematic? The first section we're going to look at is John 14, 1 through 4, and this is kind of the promise that Jesus gives us in the midst of our trouble. It's problematic to be troubled because it uncovers that our belief and our trust is in something that is not Jesus. It causes that anxiety, that troubledness that we get in our spirit is because we don't think that Jesus is actually going to quiet the storm. That we've got to quiet the storm on our own. And so it, it, it shows something, it indicates something deeper in us that's going on. It indicates that Jesus' rule and reign in our hearts has not reached its fullest extent. That there are parts in our hearts where Jesus' rule and reign has not yet taken dominion. We're walking this out the rest of our lives, so I want you to think there's something wrong with you if you're troubled. You're not. This is just the work that Jesus wants to do in you. He wants to make you more into the image of him because he's the way as we'll look at today. It indicates that there are parts in our lives that resist union with Christ, that we we think that we kind of know better in those areas of our life, and we find ourselves troubled. And one of the things I think that we will realize is that what we're saying in those moments is that the weight of the circumstance we're in has outweighed the resources we have to deal with it. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, when I was younger, some of you still think I'm a kid, that's okay. When I was younger, I was saving up for this, I think I grew up in Kentucky, so it was probably like a gun or something like that. I was saving for something and I knew exactly the price that this thing was going to be. And so I'm, I'm like, you know, getting my allowance, mowing all the yards that I can mow, saving every nickel and dime that I can possibly save to buy whatever it was that I was going to, it was a couple hundred dollars, whatever it was. And I get to the counter, and I've got this thing in my hand. It's like I'm just so excited about purchasing this item and taking it home and, and trying it out. And I get to the counter, and all of a sudden, I realize that there's this thing called sales tax, right? And so you're at the counter, you're ready to pay for this thing, and and you're ready to roll, and all of a sudden you realize that you've got insufficient funds. That you don't have enough money in your hand to pay for the item that you want. And when we are troubled in spirit, that is exactly what we're saying to God. Not for better or for worse, we're just saying that, that we don't think the grace of God and Jesus that we have can deal with the situation that we're in. And I think God's Word wants to teach us something. He wants to take us deeper than that. He wants to show us that that is not the case. He wants, to, he wants to show us that there is peace to be had. The problem is that an anxious spirit is an indicator of something malfunctioning within us at a deeper level. One of my favorite quotes in anything that I've ever read before is this quote by John Owen. And it has uh, everything to do with what we're talking about today. And John Owen once said this, trials and temptations, or we could say any circumstance you want to say, put nothing into a man but only draw out what was in him before. Trials and temptations put nothing into a man, but they only draw out what was in him before. We're tempted to think that whatever situation that we're in, like for me, like there's a lot of sleepless nights in my house right now. I was just telling a new visitor over here that our kid situation is four kids, five and under. And and so there's a lot of sleepless nights in our house. I'm, I'm tempted to think that that's the reason why I'm cranky or, you know, all these different things that are going on in my life. But but what John Owen is saying is that those things don't put anything into you. They only draw out the, the, the anxiousness, the troubled heart that was in you before. You see, those, those situations that we're in, that, that we begin to get troubled in, whatever it is for you, it's, it's, I couldn't think of a better term than this, but it's almost like it's a, it's a syringe, okay? It's, it's drawing out the unbelief that is in your heart. Whatever it is, it's drawing out whatever causes you, maybe it's your finances, maybe your bank account's not where you want it to be. Maybe it's your marriage, and you, and you think, man, if I, just had, if I just had another spouse, everything would be better. Or maybe it's your kids, and you're thinking, man, if, they just, if I could just get them into this school, then everything would be good to go. Well, all that anxiousness and troubleness within our hearts, those, those, those situations are used in our lives to show us the areas in our lives that are not trusting fully in Jesus. So this, the situation, let's go back to the upper room, the situation in the upper room with the disciples was one of these situations where Jesus was after the disciples' heart in that moment. And he could have, he could have got to it in another way, but he got to it in the way of, of Judas betraying them and Peter denying him and him telling them that he has to go away so that he can go to the cross. And all these things are revealing something deeper within them that has to be dealt with. And this is what he was after. And Jesus basically spends John chapter 14, where we're at today, through John chapter 16, dealing with the troubled hearts of the disciples. And so he go, He says over and over and over again that he's going to come back for us, that he is with us even though he's away from us, that his spirit is doing a work. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit next week, how God sends that for us. He's our helper. He's our guarantee that Jesus will return. And, and we know that Jesus spends all this time talking about this because he kind of bookends it in John 16, And some of you have heard this verse before. I'm going to read it. For you right now John 16 says this I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace Jesus is after peace in our hearts this is this is the result of knowing Christ is peace in our hearts no matter what's going on so we, I've said these things to you that you may have peace because in the world you're going to have tribulation you're going to have trouble You're going to have situations that caused angst inside of you. But what does he say? But take heart, because I've overcome the world. I've overcome whatever is going on in your life. And and Jesus hasn't even went to the cross yet, but but because he is God, he, he, he knows how all this is playing out. He knows what has to happen for peace to come and rest in my heart and on your heart. So what's the prognosis for a troubled heart? It is trust in Jesus, John 14.1. Basically, the way that it reads in the Greek is you, you believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe that I am God. The line of thinking kind of goes like this. If God is good and sovereign, all of his ways are pure and right, even when we cannot comprehend it. Even though Jesus has to go away, even though Peter denies him, even though Judas betrays him, all of these things are going on All of these things are working for good because Jesus is God. He knows that if his disciples will believe that Jesus is actually God, that he's actually the only way, then they'll trust him. And their hearts won't be troubled because they'll have trust in Jesus. So we don't know how cancer works for good. We don't know how losing our jobs works for good. We don't know how sin in our marriage or family works for good. But we know that Jesus is God and he is good. And that's where our trust is placed. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, it's a light and momentary affliction and it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So whatever it is, it's light and momentary compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. It's light and it's momentary because God is after something much deeper in you and in me. I simply think that all of the sin that you and I confront on a day-to-day basis is a result of not getting this of not really believing that Jesus is sovereignly in control and sitting on the throne, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over everything. All of the sin that we get ourselves into is because we doubt that Jesus is actually who he says he is. And so we begin to believe this subtle deception that somehow God's not in control and will take matters into our own hands. And this is exactly what originated in the garden, right? Essentially, the storyline went like this in Genesis God doesn't know what he's doing, so the enemy got Adam and Eve to believe this. God doesn't know what he's doing, and you know that, so take matters into your own hands. And that's exactly what we do when our hearts are troubled. We take matters into our own hands. And Jesus knows all this is going on in his disciples' heart, and yet he still goes to the cross. He doesn't stop. He still goes to the cross. Jesus addresses their concerns about going away because this is the most difficult thing for them to hear. And he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. So is Jesus going, is he going back to the carpentry shop? Is he going to put on his contractor belt, pull out his nails and his hammer? Is that what it means for Jesus to go and prepare a place? No, I don't think that's what he's talking about. The work of preparation that Jesus is talking about is the cross. The cross is what opens the door for all to come into my father's house. So Jesus, will, he'll pick up the wood and he'll pick up the nails, but someone else will be holding the hammer this time. And that someone else holding the hammer is exactly what grants us entrance into the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of the Father in all things, through Jesus Christ. It's exactly what permits us to be in. Nothing else. And this is why he goes on to to talk about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we're going to get to that in a second. I don't want to get there too quick. But Jesus describes heaven, my my Father's house, as, as, as the place he's preparing for us. In the King James Version, the way that they translated it, says, in my father's house there are many mansions. When I first got into the word as a teenager, I kind of thought, okay, I pictured this luxurious subdivision of mansions. I thought, man, that's what heaven's going to be like. Then I realized that was purely an American way of thinking about the kingdom of heaven. Because you know what the disciples would have had in mind here? It was not at all uncommon for a son to come back to his father's house with his family afterwards. And what they would do is the father would have a house, and then the sons would, they would build onto the house with their own houses, but they'd all kind of be connected and they would share a courtyard. The disciples would have had that in mind. That is what the, that's, that's more, that's, that's more of what heaven is going to look like than, than all these mansions, right? It's, it's going to be like, we're going to be with the father all the time. Jesus is going to be in our presence all the time. We're going to be adjoining. It's not like we're going to live in our luxurious mansion throughout the week. And then we're going to see Jesus on Sunday mornings, right? When we, when we drive our bins into, into church and celebrate and worship, right? It's not going to be like that. We're going to be with him all the time. This is what the disciples would have had in mind when he, when he talked about my father's house, when he described heaven as my father's house. It would have been all connected and joined together. That's the picture that we get. And so this is a hard thing to grasp for the disciples. But that's the promise that he gives them is, look, I'm going away, but I'm coming back for you. I'm not going to leave you here as orphans, as he says in John 14, 18. I'm coming back for you. I want you to know, take heart. I've overcome the world. He says these things. And so the disciples, remember, this is a story, okay? This is a narrative that we're looking at in the scripture. This is, this is playing out like a story. So, you know, the disciples respond to what Jesus says here in the upper room. And I've kind of said, said it like this. There's two ways that the disciples teach us how not to believe in John 14. So we're going to look at those now. The first one is this, John 14, 5 through 7, Thomas is focusing on the place instead of the person. So whenever Megan and I go to an unfamiliar place, we do the same thing that you do. We pull out our handy-dandy GPS. Whether that's on your phone or you got one of those little units or whatever it is, you pull out your GPS and you plug in the directions. Well, my wife and I are a little different on how we handle directions. I'm kind of a big picture guy. And so what I do is I, I, I plug in the location, and then I look at where it's at, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to find my way there. I don't need this map. I'll find my way there. And I look at the destination, and I'll say, okay, yeah, this road is definitely going to be better because Siri, Google, they, they don't really know what's going on. I know these streets better than them, and so I'll find my way there. And it never fails. I always end up going back to the turn-by-turn directions because I don't have a clue where I'm going, but I always try. My wife, on the other hand, plugs it in and just kind of aimlessly listens to whatever the directions say. I mean, so she could end up anywhere as long as it tells her to go there. I think that is exactly what Thomas wants here. Thomas wants his GPS talking to him. Tell me the way. Tell tell me exactly the way that you want me to go, God. Let me read John 14, 5 through 7 again to refresh your memory. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one goes to heaven. No one comes into the Father's house except through Jesus. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know me and have seen him. So Thomas is wanting to get to the place without the person, because when they see the way of Jesus, I mean, they've been walking with him. It is a tough road. It is a road that you can't walk without the presence of God with you. No one would choose that. So so hypothetically speaking, let's just say that Jesus you know, goes to his computer and he prints off Thomas a 600-page document of turn-by-turn directions of everything he needs to do in his life. Would Thomas be settled if he had that? No, because he wouldn't have the presence of God with him. He would be just as lost even though he looked like he had it all together. This is exactly what Jesus is after in the disciples because he could walk along the path without walking in Jesus. It's not about getting it all right. It's not about ending up in the right place. It's about walking with Jesus no matter what you're walking in. We see that Jesus is not this cosmic slot machine, right, where you, you, you put in the coin and Jesus spits out whatever you need. It's not how Jesus works. We can't come to the Father without being in Jesus. So what would Jesus' followers, what, what would these Jewish young men have thought about when Jesus said, I'm the way? What is, what's the way to them? Is that just something kind of thrown out in left field, or what is that? The way to these disciples would have been the law. When they heard about the way, they would have thought, okay, I know what the way is, it's the law. It's, it's keeping the law. That's, that's the way to God. And so they would have thought about that. The law is the way. The roadmap is the law. And you know what the law has shown us? You know one of the functions of the law for the believer as Christians? Jesus doesn't just rid the law out of the Bible. I mean, it's not like, hey, we don't talk about the law anymore. Jesus says, I've fulfilled the law. So the law is still very important. And one of the functions of the law, the Ten Commandments, for our lives is that They show us our sin. They show us our need for a savior. They show us how we can't do life. We can't follow God except through Jesus Christ. We can't do it. They show us our sin. And the disciples kind of knew this because earlier on in his ministry, Jesus kind of redefines the law for them. I think it's in Matthew 5 or something like that. Don't quote me on that, but somewhere around there. Jesus says, hey, you you know, you think you know the law. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And he basically says... This Well, I said that that a man that's committed lust in his mind has had an affair. He's committed adultery. A man that's hated in his heart, it's like he's murdered someone. And so all of a sudden, what do all the disciples see? We're all guilty. The book of James talks about the fact that if you've trespassed against the law in one place, it's like you've disobeyed the whole thing. It's an all or nothing kind of a thing. And so the disciples would have seen when Jesus said, I'm the way, They would have seen that Jesus is saying that he's the way to God. He's the one that's going to fulfill what God requires on their behalf. And there is going to be no other way for them to inherit the kingdom of heaven, to walk in the presence of God except through Jesus Christ. That's what they would have seen in this text. That's what they would have realized in that moment. And I talk to people all the time. And functionally... They may say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the way, but in their lives, they're trying to find another way themselves. And and I'm here to tell you this morning that no matter kind of what your background is, no one will get to the pearly gates of heaven and say, hey, God, I found another way. I found this loophole. I found this loophole into the kingdom. Yeah, it was the wildest thing. I took this left turn, and it it said road closed, and I just kept going, and and I'm here. Because Jesus is the only way. The only way that anyone will be with the Father forever. Is through Jesus. And that's what the scriptures tell us this morning. If there would have been another way, yeah, because get this. Jesus tried to find another way. Think about this. In Matthew 26, 39, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the last night of his life on earth. The first time. And he says, He says, This, my father, if it be possible. Let this cup pass from me. Father, let there be another way. Let there be another way. And the clause at the end is this, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you. We see that Jesus and the Father are one in this moment. And if you know anything about the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying and he is sweating blood at this this moment because he is praying so intently for the Father's will to be done. And there's this tension of him not wanting to go to the cross, but knowing that it's the only way for you and I to ever be with God is for him to go to the cross. And you know the weight of him going to the cross? Because some people so easily reject this. You know what the weight upon Jesus was? It was so that he said in Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because when God dumped all the sins of the world on Jesus' shoulders, that's what it felt like. Like God had forsaken him, that he had turned his back on him, yet he knew it was the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus had to be troubled in that moment so that you and I could experience the peace that John 16, talks about forever. And a troubled heart is a heart that doesn't trust in that work. And that's the work that God wants to continue to do in us. There's another question. John 14, 8 through 14. Philip. Philip, in my opinion, is missing the forest for the trees. He's missing the forest for the trees. And a couple weeks ago, this ridiculous thing happened in my house. We lost a remote. Anybody ever done that before? You lost a remote? You lost your keys? You're like, man, can I put a GPS on this thing? And so you know, we, we search high and low. The kids are even invested in this, right? Because they can't watch their shows without the remotes. So they're looking everywhere. They're tearing the house apart. And they're looking for this remote, and we can't find it anywhere, so I do. What every man does, I go on Amazon and order a new one. <laughs> and so we get the new remote, in, and I kid you not, the day that we order the new remote, Amanda's sitting on my couch in her women's discipleship group, my wife, my wife's leading, and she's like, "Hey, what is this thing like down here, like in the?" She pulls out our remote. I'm like, "We looked everywhere in the house. Looked at, we looked in that couch, and we still missed it somehow." Philip is missing the forest for the trees in John chapter fourteen. I think Philip probably would have uttered something like this: "Lord." You know, I have to see it to believe it. Have you ever met someone like that? If I just saw it, I would believe it. I've met someone. I'm that guy. Just let me see it. And it's enough. Because Jesus just said, hey, I'm the Father. And the Father's in me. We're one. And, and you are one in us is what he'll go on to say in John 17. And Philip's like, Jesus, I got the answer. Just show us the Father. Everything will be good to go. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about, Philip? I've shown you the Father. I think he's joined in with a whole host, a whole company of people. Including Moses in Exodus 33, where Moses says, Hey, God, just let me see your face. And God's like, Hey, Moses, bro, you can't see my face because you're going to die if you see my face. But I'll, I'll show you the back of me. I'll walk by you. I think Philip is kind of asking for the same thing here. He just wants to see him. So what's the danger? So what's the, what's the inherent problem with Philip's question? Because our questions often reveal kind of the situation that we're in, right? The way that we ask the question. What's the problem? Well, it's clear that Philip does not see Jesus as God in this moment, not to the full extent anyway. And so what's the danger of this? The danger of not seeing Jesus as God is that we could easily be following someone else other than the God of the Bible, all the while thinking that we're following him. You see, what happened is Philip had this, in his mind, he had this idea of who God was. And he'd been with Jesus and hadn't kind of connected the dots yet. And he's, he's thought about all the things that Jesus has done, like the time that he chose to go through Samaria instead of going around it, and he met this prostitute at a, at a well, and he basically converted her, and, and they had great fellowship in that moment. Or, or the time that, that uh, Jesus went into the tax collector's house and had a meal. <laughs> and he's thinking, like, Jesus, you're great, but I don't know if you're the way. I mean, I don't know if you're the same as God, because I don't, I don't see God doing that. He had this thought of who God was, and yet... It wasn't accurate to what Jesus has said. And there's no greater example in the scriptures of this than in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is a parable that Jesus says about the the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, and it's funny because I read it like that and we're like, man, what a tool, right? I mean, that's what we're saying about this guy. But there's more of him in us than we ever realize, right? There really is. Even with a troubled heart, there's some of that inside of us. We think we can handle it. And, and how does the, the, the tax collector respond? He was standing far off, Not even, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, by, watching, by the watching world, claimed to know God and to know who God was Yet the problem was there wasn't even a tinge of grace in his prayer. There was was no guilt in his heart for the sin that he had committed. He wasn't trusting anyone else to justify him except himself. And when we have a troubled heart, we're anxious, we're kind of doing a form of this. We're trusting ourselves to justify the situation. We're not trusting that Jesus has actually taken care of this. In other words... think god kind of says this to philip philip i know what you're asking moses asked me the same thing you want to see me but here's what i'm telling you what what i'm giving you is is more than a fleeting memory of my presence i want to give you more than just a picture the freeze frame i want to give you myself i want to come and dwell inside of you matthew 28 20 and lo i am with you always until the end of the age that's the promise So there's this reality that we have here and now in this very moment that Jesus is with us and all of the eschatological benefits of knowing God, the end-time benefits of being in heaven, we have here right now. They're not fully here because sin is also here, but they are here with us now. The Father is with us. Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit is inside of us, proving that to us every single day. Jesus wants to give us more than we want to give ourselves, and that's a very good reality kind of come to grips with he says greater works than these he will do this is kind of confusing sometimes so i just want to briefly touch on this and basically the greater works that that jesus is talking about that his disciples will do is this work of proclaiming the gospel and seeing people come to faith what greater work is there in the world than seeing a dead life a, a dead person come to life in jesus christ What greater work is there? I mean, think about this. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter's preaching, 3,000 people turn into genuine converts of Jesus Christ. Old hearts exchanged for new hearts. New birth happening in that moment. That's more than Jesus ever saw in his ministry. The greater works are the works of conversion and, and, and the benefits of proclaiming the gospel and seeing the Holy Spirit activate hearts and make them new. So how will we do these greater works? We'll do these greater works because we're in him. Like it's not, we're not saving people. When I was a youth pastor, I used to always have students come up to me and say, hey, look, I saved this guy here and I just want you to help him get connected to the church and stuff like that. And I always stop and I'll be like, hey, whoa. you've been obedient to God and I'm so grateful for that. But Jesus has saved your friend and you have, you have helped lead them. But you've kind of worked in cooperation with the Holy Spirit in this. And that's what we do. Those are the greater works that we do. And lastly, in verses 13 and 14, there's this another kind of confusing word about prayer here that I want to clarify just a little bit, and I'll read John 14, 13, and 14 for us so we're all on the same page here. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, Jesus says, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Some of you are like, oh, that's all I need to hear, I'm getting out of here, right, I, I Sometimes we're tempted to think that if we just tack on Jesus' name to the end of our prayer, that God's going to do it. I don't think that's what he's saying here. Actually, I know that's not what he's saying here. We're not tacking on Jesus' name to the end of this. What praying in Jesus' name really means is that we're praying as if our Lord Himself is doing the asking. Because we're one in Christ, we're praying the things that Jesus would be praying in that situation. We approach the throne of grace in full identification with the son who we find life in. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. We're asking the things that Jesus would ask because we are his ambassadors. And as 2 Corinthians 5 says, God is making his appeal through us to an unbelieving world. And so we're praying for the things that Jesus would be praying about. So our work, kind of as we wrap this up right here, our work is to align ourselves with the will of God. It is then that whatever we ask, He will do. Psalm 37.4 has been a kind of a go-to scripture for me when I think about my prayer life, when I think about my needs. And Psalm 37.4 says this, Delight yourselves in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's what Jesus was talking about asking in His name. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, when we find our full identification in the Lord, ask whatever you wish and it'll be given because it's, Jesus is fully living inside of you. You're not asking things for your flesh. You're asking the things of the kingdom of God. And it's not that Jesus isn't interested in your material life. Jesus came to redeem all things, right? Not just souls. He's redeeming things. We see that in Romans 8. So I want you to think he's not concerned with that, but we ask in accordance with his will and he does the work. So wherever you are today, wherever you're anxious today, wherever your heart is troubled today, Whatever leads you to think that you've got to take things into your own hands, I want to encourage you that you're not alone in this, that Jesus' disciples, the very men that spent the most time with him out of anyone, dealt with the same thing. But God has not given you that work. Our work is to trust. Our work is to believe, as John 14 says. And in that, God sends his spirit to comfort us, and we are okay no matter what happens because Jesus cares more about our circumstances than we do. Let's pray together. Father, you're so good, you're so loving. You love me so much that you don't give me what I want. You give me what I need. Father, I pray that you would give us exactly what we need this morning. That you meet each and every one of us in the place that we need to be met. That we would cast all of our cares upon you, all of our anxieties upon you, because we know that you care for us and that you're sovereign over every single thing that we have going on in our lives. Father, give us hearts of trust and faith and belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other way to the Father except through him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.